We're in Isaiah. We are in chapters 2 through 4. If you're using the Bible that's in the pew rack, you can find that on page 567. Page 567. We always read the passage at the outset of the sermon. And that's the time when we hear God's word. Recently, we've been closing, I'll say, this is God's word, and we'll together say, thanks be to God, to express our gratitude that God has spoken, that we can hear his very word to us. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapters 2 to 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn more war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures and their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled for Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. For Yahweh of hosts has a day. Against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. 
And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. For Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. And the idol shall utterly pass away. And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man. In whose nostril is breath? For of what account is he? For behold, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I'll make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable for a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak. You shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day he'll speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there's neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me the leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against Yahweh, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them, for they brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt, dealt out, shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they've swallowed up the course of your paths. Yahweh has taken his place to condemn. He contend, he stands to judge peoples. Yahweh will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with 
outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and Yahweh will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. And instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground And seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then Yahweh will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, as we hear your word read, we realize how much we need to hear it. There is much here, and as we hear it read, we know it's much that we need, we need to grasp. So together right now at the outset of this time, meditating on what you've said, in addition to thanking you for speaking, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help to give us understanding, to open our hearts, to shape us and mold us by your word. Work powerfully through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Most people long for a utopian paradise, but few people live their lives today in light of that desire for a paradise. More specifically, with God's people, there is a misalignment between the kingdom that God is building 
the future kingdom and the way we go about embodying that today. And the cure for this misalignment is a pair of glasses, bifocals to be specific. Because our problem is a problem of not seeing clearly. We struggle with nearsightedness, that is, we can't see what's far away with clarity. And we struggle with farsightedness. That means we can't see what's near to us and close up clearly. What I mean is we can't see the future kingdom that God is ultimately building and ultimately establishing. We can't see that with clarity. And we can't see ourselves and our present day with clarity. And what this passage does for us today is it gives us those bifocals. A pair of glasses that's going to help bring clarity to what God's ultimately doing so that we can see his future plan. And even by seeing that, we begin to see then our own day and our own age with greater clarity. And so the prophet Isaiah, God's word, His spirit carrying us today is going to give us these glasses to correct our thinking so that there isn't this misalignment. There are three sections of our passage. It begins and ends the same way, with a vision of God's future kingdom. So the first four verses of chapter 2, the last five verses of chapter 4, Vision of God's future kingdom. That would be point one and point three. And in the middle, it talks about our present misalignment with that vision. A vision of God's future kingdom, present misalignment with that vision, a vision of God's future kingdom. So let's look right out of the gate at Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, this vision of the future kingdom. What is God ultimately up to? And we know from Genesis that there's a problem in our world. Mankind rebelled against God. It unleashed all sorts of problems in this world. And the strife between, between us, the ethnocentric Conflict, wars and battles, famines and plagues, disease and death, all of that is part of us rebelling against our creator. But God has promised to do something about that. He's bringing about a restoration of his creation, a repairing of what we've damaged. We know all that from Genesis. And here we have this beautiful vision. I love, I love how chapter or verse 4 brings it out. The, the imagery of, of beating these swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. You could extend that imagery, right? Like our, our, our dagger-like words 
being turned into bouquets of flowers, maybe, or our disparaging thoughts being turned into loving sentiments. But you see the reversal of verse 4. And, and who doesn't look at that and say, that's something that I want. It's something I desire. Maybe you're in this room and you're not a follower of Christ. And you hear that vision, you say, yeah, I want a world like that. There's a lot that's broken, I know, and I want a world like that. But how do we get to a world like that according to this vision? It says, all the nations, all of them come and bow their knee and acknowledge the God of Jacob, Israel's God, as the one true God. The creator God, the one who made all of this. We bow before him and acknowledge him as the God. And what, what is it? What is it that they do when they come to his holy mountain? Look in the middle of verse 3. That he may teach us his ways. That we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. We don't need to be our own kings, making our own, deciding what's right and deciding what's good and figuring this out in our own wisdom. No, lay that aside and say we need to be taught his ways. Let his law, his word, be what shapes us. Trying to bring about peace and paradise and utopia without restoring God to his rightful place on his throne is perhaps a little bit like trying to create delicious food without fat or seasoning. Or like trying to restore the planets to their proper orbit when the sun has all but disappeared. It's a fool's errand until the sun is how it should be. Those planets will not spin in their proper orbit. And so we have this opening vision of the future kingdom that God's going to establish. Now, Israel of Isaiah's day would have heard this vision and they would have been like, yeah, that's great. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand, cast a wishful, I'm bound, I'm bound, I'm bound for the promised land. They were holding hands, celebrating. In fact, these verses two to four, this, that, that, those exact words are, are used in Micah chapter four, almost verbatim. They're echoed throughout the Psalms. In fact, some people think this was a song that was circulated, that was sung in that day. But even if that's not the case, it's clear that this would have been a familiar sentiment and longing for Israel. I mean, we want the nations flowing to us. We want, to be, we want our mountain being the highest of the mountains. That's what we're looking for. Jerusalem, yay! Got their flags on their trucks. And then Isaiah hits them with verse 5. The first 
major imperative, the first of two major imperatives in our whole passage. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Now this, this command begins the middle section of our sermon where we see the present misalignment with God's vision. And proportionally, we're going to spend most of our sermon in this middle section, which begins in 2 verse 5 and runs all the way through 4 verse 1. Now, there's a little bit of structure to this middle section, so I just want to lay it out for you. It's two, there's two main imperatives in 2.5 and 2.22. And those imperatives kind of help us see there's two, two, two areas, two themes within this middle section. And in chapter 2, after 2.5, there's two stanzas that we'll look at. And then in chapter 3, after 2.22, there's two stanzas that we'll look at. So you're going to have a command followed by two stanzas, a command followed by two stanzas, and then we'll get to our third point. Does that make sense where we're going in the lay of the land here? So this command, walk in the light of Yahweh, is going to govern the two stanzas that follow it. He's saying... If you like this vision, let's walk in light of it. But Yahweh's rejected his people. See where that goes, verse 6? So you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Why? Verses 6 to 9 are that, that first stanza following the, the command. And you could summarize this stanza. The world is within us. The world is within us. Look, look how this, this stanza follows almost in the opposite of the vision that we just had. In the vision we just had, all the nations are flowing to Israel for spiritual blessings. Here, Israel is running to the pagan nations for material blessings. In the opening vision, you see people pounding their weapons into agricultural tools. Here Israel is storing up horses and chariots, anything that's going to be useful for battle. In the opening vision, they're looking to the one true God and saying, let your word shape us. And here, Israel is forming idols with their own hands to follow them. There's an old comparison of God's people to a boat it's supposed to be in the water. It's not supposed to have the water in it. And what was true of Israel then can be true of the church today. We're not very useful when the water that God has designed us to be a sort of lifeboat floating in it, when the water gets inside. 
the world's values and thought forms, the world's security, where it finds security, the world's priorities. It's so common for us to to take those very things, maybe attach a Christian cliche that that sort of Christianizes it, or even a Bible verse ripped out of context that proves it, and then to baptize it and bring it right into the boat. It's not how it should be. That is why God is set against Israel, and as insofar as the church is acting that way, it grieves God's heart. Man is humbled, each one is brought low. Do not forgive them, the prophet exclaims, because he's so grieved by this. Of course, if you read it in the whole context of Isaiah, there's a longing for true restoration, but there's also just that immediacy of, this is awful. This can't go unpunished. The world is within us, the first stanza, which leads to the next stanza, verses 10 through 21. So God is against us. The world is within us, so God is against us. This second stanza has a refrain. Verses 10 and 11 are that refrain. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust. From before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. That's the refrain. Kind of a long one, but I didn't write it. Look at verse 17. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Verse 19, And the people shall enter into the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. And verse 21, To enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Opens and closes with the same restraint. Of course, at the end, it adds those words about idolatry. You're gonna, when, when this happens, you're going to want to have nothing to do with idols. Give them to the bats and the moles. You don't want to have anything to do with these things anymore. But you got this refrain at the beginning of the end of, there's going to be this time when, when you, the day of the Lord appears, and I'm gonna, people are going to be like, how do I hide from this? Because we're, we're humbled. We're brought low. We see how strong he is. And in the middle... In the middle of the stanza with the refrain opening and the refrain closing, listen to what he says, verses 12 to 16. For Yahweh of hosts, that means like the God of an army, right? The Yahweh of hosts has a day against all that's proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Against all the oaks of Bashan. Against all the lofty mountains. Against all the uplifted hills. Against every high tower. Against every fortified wall. Against all the ships of Tarshish. Against all the beautiful craft. You see, all these things that make us rely on ourselves make us self-reliant and self-righteous, self-ruling. All these things 
It's like God's just going to pull the rug out from under us. There's going to be a great reversal. Things that make us feel secure and safe that are man-made in anything but God will be stripped from us. Because, because we've lost sight of, of what God's ultimately doing in the world, where he needs to be restored to his rightful place, and his word and his law needs to be governing things, and instead, we're relying on all these other things, all these man-made things, and so God's like, yeah, the world's within you, so I'm going to bring out about a reversal that rips all that out. And you see how great I am and how small you actually are. He wants us to walk in the light of what he's doing. As, as the, the grand vision of the future kingdom, we see that with greater clarity. All of a sudden, we can look on our own day and age and be like, oh yeah, we're a long way from this. And that leads to the second major command in verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This verse, you know, I said it's, it's the second command that governs kind of the second half of this, this middle section we're in. Two stanzas to follow it. But, but this verse 22, really it's like a bridge between the two, between chapter two and chapter three. Because it, like a bridge, it's like, it's got its roots in what's before it and in what's after it. And it really, it really brings them together. So you'll hear echoes in this command from what we just saw. Stripping us of self-reliance and all the things we tend to rely on ourselves. So we'll see the greatness of God. And we'll see how it leads to what's to come in the next two stanzas. This verse, then, is really the crux of the matter for this middle section. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? The image here, that middle line, in whose nostrils is breath, harkens back to when God first made man. <clears throat> how do we get that breath? How do we breathe? How do we have life? It's because God took the dust, dirt, mud, and this master potter formed humans and then breathed life into us. I want you to look, Isaiah chapter 45. Look how Isaiah, the image Isaiah uses to apply this exact same principle in Isaiah 45. Verses 9 and 10. 45, 9 and 10. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pod among earthen pots. 
Does the clay say to him who forms it, uh, what are you making? Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? <laughs> He's a good preacher. It's pretty good imagery. And when the, the, the ultimate reversal and restoration comes, listen to how he uses that again. He picks it up again, the same image in chapter 64. Isaiah 64 and verse 8. But now, O Yahweh, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We're all the work of your hand. Stop regarding man. And his nostrils, his breath. Of what account is he? I mean, why are we looking to humans for security? Why are we looking to humans for affirmation? Why are we looking to humans for worth? Why are we looking to, to humans to find our purpose? Stop it! Stop it! Stop regarding man. This command then governs the next two stanzas. The first stanza runs from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to verse 15. And it begins just with verse 1. Yahweh, or the Lord Yahweh of hosts. Again, this, the God of the armies. It's taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. Now, I want to just stop there for a second because I mentioned this in the, in the Isaiah 1 sermon, but you, we, we cannot read Isaiah without understanding Leviticus 26 because in Leviticus 26, through Moses, when Israel was just being formed as a new nation coming out of Egypt, Moses says, look, I'm just telling you, you guys are going to be rebellious. But God still loves you. And so, when you rebel against him, he's going to do things to get your attention, to show you that you're wandering away from the purpose with which he formed you. And here are the very specific things I'm going to do. And it starts smaller and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And at this point when Isaiah is prophesying to Israel, the bigger things are starting to happen. And Isaiah is really coming to them and saying, look, have you missed Leviticus 26? God is trying to get our attention to see this is where we're going so that we'll repent, turn to him. He'll forgive us and restore so we can be what we were created to be to begin with. And this specific thing, cutting off supply of bread and water, is something specifically prophesied in Leviticus 26. So I think this first verse is just going to say everything that follows is really, this is what God's doing based on Leviticus 26, okay? But verses 1 to 15 are, are primarily focused on how our leaders fail us. Our leaders fail us. So stop regarding man, 3, 1 to 15, our leaders fail us. 
Look at verses 2 to 4. He's not just going to cut off the bread and water. He's going to cut off the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. I said two to four. I meant two to three. It's interesting to look at that. It's a very telling list of who the the leaders are in Israel, right? I mean, there's some good. They got elders. They got judges. They got a prophet. But they also have a diviner and a magician and an expert in charms. When you go to get your Christian podcast, some of those teachers are tethered to the word and are faithful. But some of them are just the spiritualists and gurus of this world. Smuggled into the church. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And we listen to them. All truth is God's truth. This is so helpful, man. This is the problem. The water's in the boat. I'm not saying you can never listen to a non-Christian. can qualify this in the way the Holy Spirit knew will qualify it. He's trying to preach this passage. And God's saying, I'm going I'm to bring your leaders down. I'm just going to get rid of them all. They still want a leader. Okay, you're going to have infants ruling you. Still want a leader. Okay. It's going to be young rulers who... who Bully the elders. Dishonorable leaders who bully those who are honorable. Okay, then we'll look around. Oh, that person has a Gucci leather coat on. They must be doing something right. You come rule over us. Canada goose down jack. I mean, when things are going bad, they got bad. Something's going right. You come rule over us. Look at verse 7. The coat, the coat wearer is a prophet. I will not be a healer. That, that language is, is an echo of chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Do you remember when we were in chapter 1 and we talked about the, the man who's like, the, the husband's like, I'm fine, dear, I'm fine. He's like riddled with disease. I don't need to go to a doctor. It's the same language from that. And this guy's like, I can't bind up his wounds either. The disease you got, I can't fix. The church has a disease, in some ways akin to what Israel had. And we're chasing after people wearing Canada Goose jackets saying, oh, you must be doing something right. Come heal our disease. What do we need? It's not what we need. I'm not your healer, he says. I don't have anything to offer you. Why? Stop regarding man. That's where verse 8 goes. 
It's not stop regarding man. It's saying you've lost sight of the glorious presence of Yahweh. And so your words and deeds are defying him. That's why I'm undoing all all your leaders. Look at verse 9. I mean, they're brazen in this. It's not like, oh, we're pursuing sexual immorality. We're trying to make ourselves king and and say, follow your heart instead of follow God. We probably shouldn't be saying these things. We realize how contrary that is to what God's doing in this world. No, No, they're like, no, follow your heart. Pursue pleasure. Express yourself sexually. Proud of it. We're an open and affirming church. Isn't this great? Woe to them. They brought the evil on themselves. Verses 10 and 11 are a bit of an aside. Not everyone has jumped down the rabbit hole. So I just want to say, Isaiah said, I just want to say, those who've made Yahweh their refuge, who are actually still seeking him, I got you. This, this, is, this is a word directed at the wicked. And then verse 12 kind of just repeats the same concept of verses 2 to 6. And then at the end of this stanza, Yahweh himself speaks to the leaders of his people, telling them why he's brought them down. Picking up in the middle of verse 14, it is you who have devoured the vineyard, God's precious vineyard. You've devoured it. And spoil the pores in your houses. And then he just says the same thing. What do you mean by crushing my people? And then grinding the faces of the poor. And then you have it again. Declares the Lord Yahweh of hosts. That's who's speaking. Uh, How we use the authority that God vests in us. Is one of the most revealing things about our character. And are we using it to make ourselves more at ease and more comfortable, to puff ourselves up, to feel good about ourselves? Or do we use it to bring God's blessing to others, and particularly those who are vulnerable and needy? And when we go in the first direction instead of the second, It grieves God's heart and he's opposed to it. And eventually it spoils his vineyard. God sets himself against such leaders. Our leaders fail us. Why do we regard man? But it's not just our leaders that fail us. It's also our riches that fail us. And that's the second stanza. 3.16 all the way through 4.1. Our riches fail us. The, the, other, the, the, the previous stanza ends with Yahweh speaking. This one begins with Yahweh speaking, and he's addressing the daughters of Zion. And a lot of what he's doing is, is really a, kind of a, a female-oriented rebuke of, of wealth and ease and comfort. You'll pick up on some of that. Like it's, 
But these are meant to embody all of Israel. We know that because the last verse, the last two verses of chapter three are kind of saying, like, like this, is, this is affecting all of Israel. So yes, I'm speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion, but this is all of us. You heard it when I read it at the outset. The imagery is just so powerful. Isaiah is a preacher. I feel a little inadequate to, to do any better than what he said. I guess I should probably feel that with every passage. Maybe I'll just read the Bible all the time instead of preach. No, God calls us to explain and exhort in light of it. I'm okay. But listen to what he says. Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and Yahweh will lay bare their secret parts. And that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, and the scarves, the headdresses, the armulets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings, and the nose rings, the fessel robes, the mantles, the cloaks, and the handbags. Not the handbags, don't go there. (laughs) The mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, let's stick with that one, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there'll be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth and branding instead of beauty. It doesn't mean that every one of these things is wicked in and of itself. You see them attached to godly women in the scriptures, some of those things. But you get a picture here, don't you? Of these well-to-do, comfortable women they have all their stuff together, just kind of going about, I got my stuff. Feeling so good about themselves. Because of how they appear and how they look and what they have. And you see these things that their confidence is in their riches. Their security is in what that affords them and the power and the, and the beauty that it opens to them. They're going to fail you too. Just take it away. And, and the closing image in this, in this last stanza is so powerful. They're, they're, going, they're going to a man saying, look, I'll take care of my food and clothes. Just let me be called by your name. Their husbands have been enabling all this wealth and prosperity, and now that God's bring this great reversal, they've lost that. It seems like they've lost their husbands who've died. And now, any, any man, I just want that name to get a, a little chance to kind of grab back what I had a little bit. Stop it! Stop regarding man. Don't run after the man with the cloak. He's no healer. Don't run after the man with the name. That's not the name we need to be called by. Stop it. Are we beginning to see? Is it beginning to come in focus? So those bifocals, right, when we look far, what God is doing, the opening vision, and how does that call us to walk in the light of the Lord and stop regarding man? And we see, oh my goodness, that is actually true. Today even, not just Israel of old, but today even in the broader church and in some ways in my own heart, it drifts those ways. And so I need to see that clearly so I can, I can walk how I should. 
And of course, it concludes with the final vision, the third section, uh, another vision of God's future kingdom that he's building. Let's get these bifocals right. Let's see what God's doing. And I, I just want to I want to talk about something that Isaiah likes to do as we look at this. There's, there's something I'm going to call an Isaiah clue. I didn't read that in a book somewhere. If you don't like it, take aims with me. But throughout our series in Isaiah, I'm going to talk about an Isaiah clue. Drop the H, add an IC. Isaiah, drop the H. Isaiah clue. Okay, so what, what Isaiah likes to do as he writes... One of his favorite things is to drop some little clue about what God's doing ultimately that doesn't make a lot of sense when he first drops it. It's just kind of like, what? Where did that come from? And then a few chapters later, he drops another Isaiah clue that, Isaiah clue that links back to that one. And then he develops it and develops it and develops it until this, by the end of Isaiah, you're going, oh, Okay, I see what he was doing. And I, I think it's very intentional. It builds, it, it draws us in. It kind of piques our curiosity, right? And so there's two Isaiah clues as he describes this future kingdom. And the first one comes right out of the gates. He says, in that day, the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious. What? A branch is going to be beautiful and glorious? What is he talking about? Isaiah clue. Okay, I'm just going to show you. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to show you how this develops. Look at chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is called to be a prophet, he said, preach judgment. But at the the very end, in verse 13, he says, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, The holy seed is its stump. Why are we talking about stump and a seed and a stump? Isaiah clue. And those two clues, this idea of a branch and a stump, come together in chapter 11. So look at chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Who's Jesse? Jesse was David's dad. So a royal line is coming. God is going to bring about what he promised David. There's going to be a royal line that comes and it's going to come out of the stump. It'll be this seed that comes up and it will be the branch that bears fruit in his future kingdom. Okay, it's starting to make sense. One more clue. I just want you to, he waits all the way till chapter 53, probably the most famous chapter in Isaiah, to drop one more clue. Isaiah 53, many of you are familiar with this passage. In verse 2, he grew up before us like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He's not just the Davidic royal, mighty king. He's also the the suffering one who will bear our sins. Oh, that's what I mean by the branch. 
So the future kingdom that God's going to bring is going to come about by this figure, this branch from Jesse, this branch from David, who is also a suffering servant, who will usher in God's kingdom out of the stump, a new branch, a new kingdom that's rooted in him. It's Jesus who went to the cross to usher it in. And that's the other clue is, okay, so how is this all going to work? Verse 4, he's going to wash away the filth and cleanse the bloodstains. The people who get to be in this kingdom are the ones who are washed and cleansed. That's good news for a bunch of us who just felt convicted by the water in the boat. Washed and cleansed. Through the suffering servant. Through what Jesus did on the cross for us. That's why it doesn't just say, oh, God's going to kind of wink at sin. No big deal. It's all right. I'm fine. Come on in. No, he's actually just cleansed from its midst. Sorry, cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. It's not just forgiveness, it's justice and forgiveness together, which only makes sense in light of what Jesus did on the cross when he took our penalty for us. So when we're trying to get our our focus right and we're trying to see the future kingdom so that we can live today in light of that, the opening vision gives us this vision. It's all nations coming with God restored to his rightful place as king and lawgiver. The, The executive branch, the judicial branch, the Legislative branch, all in him. But this last vision says, it's all about Jesus, the branch, and the forgiveness and the healing he brings. So so we've got to keep both those in mind. So as we live today, we ourselves try and embody that what God's called us to be. You think of it a little bit like, uh, I like to go to the farmer's market and not spend money, but just eat all the samples. COVID's been terrible for me. Although the Guelph market, there were a few samples last time we went. Thank you. But we're a little bit like that. Come, come taste, God wants to say, come taste a little bit of what the future kingdom is supposed to be like. I'm gonna put my people together here, this boat in this water to say, there's a lifeboat, come, there's hope. That's what we're supposed to be. So we got to know what the future kingdom is. And that means allowing God to be our king. And it also means being about his gospel, his branch, his Jesus, who allows a way for sinners like us to be cleansed of our blood, washed of our bloodstains. Almost everybody longs for a utopian paradise. But far fewer people live today in light of that utopia they envision. More specifically, amongst God's people, there is a misalignment between the future kingdom that God's building and how we embody that today. And Isaiah has given us these bifocal lenses to help correct this problem. What will we do? Let's pray. Father, 
Help us to hear that we might reflect you. We do it imperfectly. We know that, and you're gracious with us, but we want to do it better and better. So help us to hear and change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.